0: I'll invite you to take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn to Daniel, chapter 2. Today marks the beginning of of the end, as it were, of our somewhat topical series on interpretation, on uh, the the foundations of why we believe what we believe about the um, Scriptures, building up to our series in the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, It's taken a little bit longer than I had anticipated initially, um, not necessarily uh, to to anyone's surprise, I would imagine. But um, the the idea is that we have been building up to revelation because revelation is uh, among christian circles contentious and and uh, some of these things are are necessarily so in that there are true problems out there with certain interpretations others not so necessarily to where um one way or another there's disagreements but it's not going to make a huge difference one way or the other as far as who's right or wrong as far as history is concerned but when we take a stand On something and we say this is why we're doing what we're doing this is why we believe what we believe it is important for us particularly for our young people in this age um, to know the process as a believer we believe things about the Bible we read the Bible we believe certain things then there are other people who read the Bible they read the same verses we're reading They're reading the same passages we're reading, but they're coming to very different conclusions, right? And that's why we're doing this. Why do we come to the conclusions we come to? Does that mean that when we stand before God, we have 100% certainty that everything that we're saying is right and that we're right and they're wrong? It doesn't. It doesn't. But what it does mean is that when we say, why do we believe what we believe, there's something to it. It's not arbitrary, It's not just because this is what dad believed, and this is what grandpa believed, or this is what pastor said. We started at the beginning, and we built it up so that there's a foundation and there's some strength there that give us confidence that what we believe is founded upon something. And not only that, but then it gives us confidence that when someone comes and challenges our understanding and presuppositions, it gives us confidence not just to say, well, which one sounds better or which one makes most sense to me, but rather to dig to the foundation and say, okay, foundationally speaking, if I build on that foundation, where did they diverge from me? Now let's get back to that point of divergence and say, am I right or or are they? And this is how we maintain a purity of the faith. This is how we maintain a stability in our faith. And this is the last bit of that. So we covered all of those things. We talked foundationally about why we believe what we believe, about how we interpret the Bible. Uh, we've, we've covered so many different topics, and now I'm giving you the big picture. This is going to be three messages long, and there might be a little bit shorter, uh, at least the first two, um, because I, I wanted to just do two messages, but, but I felt as though the messages... My, if you've been following me online, they've been, they've been getting to about 70 minutes, and that's just too long so, <laughs> uh, uh, on, on the time clock. So I'm trying to bring it back down to the 50-minute range, um, which is where, where they need to be. And uh, that, that's the intent here. So we're going to start the big picture today. The big picture of God's plan for humanity from the time that He gave it to Daniel to the end, the tribulation, the millennial kingdom, and the new heaven, and the new earth. And we begin there with Daniel. Daniel is a, a book, it's what we call an apocalyptic book. It speaks of end times events heavily. There are some breaks Between those where we get narratives, of course, uh, Daniel in the lion's den and and Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael in the fiery furnace. And uh, we get these these breaks in between various revelations, but we have a great deal of revelation of future events. Some of those future events were future in Daniel's time and have now been fulfilled. Others of these future events are yet to be fulfilled. And today we're not going to get quite... uh, To that point of the yet to be fulfilled, we'll cover that in the next couple of messages. Today we're speaking on God giving the broad, big picture of the rest of his plan for the world from Daniel's time on, specifically his plan for the nation of Israel within the world. So we step into Daniel chapter 2, and the Bible tells us that the king of Babylon, a man named Nebuchadnezzar, has a dream. He's deeply troubled by this dream. He wants this dream interpreted. He is very intent on having this dream interpreted. But he claims to have forgotten the dream. Now, this is a dubious claim. Uh, He he may have forgotten the dream. It may very well have been that he says, the thing is from me so that, because what he wants is he wants somebody to tell him what the dream is, and then he wants it interpreted. Why? Because this is so important to him that he doesn't just want to give someone a, a dream and then to have them say what they think it means. He wants to know that what is said is right. And what better way to know that these people actually have some sort of legitimate insight than to force them to tell you what the dream is first, and then to interpret the dream. If they know his dreams, then they can certainly know how to interpret his dreams, right? And so that's what he does here. He says, if a wise man cannot tell me what the dream is, and then interpret the dream for me, Then I'm going to kill all the wise men in Babylon. Well, the wise men say, this is an impossible thing. Tell us the dream. We'll give you the interpretation. But we can't know what's in your head. We can't know what you dreamed. Nebuchadnezzar says, then you're all dead men. So the the decree goes out for them all to die, and that decree falls upon the ears of some uh, eunuchs. uh, They they were a part of this band, though uh, obviously not influential at the time. They were some refugees from Jerusalem. They had been taken by Nebuchadnezzar in that first deportation in 605 B.C., when Nebuchadnezzar had first gone into Jerusalem, taken out all the princes and nobles of the land. Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael were among them. They were given Babylonian names, Belshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, names that honored the gods of Babylon rather than the god of uh, of Israel. And they were made wise men, eunuchs and wise men. And Daniel says, Give me some time, I'll pray to the Lord. The Lord is the one who who gives dreams and gives interpretations. And then I will let you know if if the Lord answers me and allows me to know the dream and the interpretation. So Daniel uh, prays, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael pray with him, and the Lord gives Daniel the interpretation, the dream, and the interpretation of this dream. And so we pick up in Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 31. We're going to read quite a bit of scripture today, so obviously it'll be on the screen. If you have your Bibles there, um, I'd encourage you to do so. If you need a Bible, there's some on the back table to my right and your left, and you can certainly pick up one of those as well. Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 31, the Bible says this, Daniel speaking, Thou, O King, sawest, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till a stone was cut, uh, uh, was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver... And the gold broke into pieces together and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Here we have a dream of an image. And Daniel tells him, This was your dream a head of gold, breast and arms of silver, belly and thigh of brass legs of iron and then feet of iron mixed with clay and then a great stone that was cut out without hands, a hewn without hands, a great unhewn stone that came and hit this image at the feet and when he this stone hit the image at its feet, the whole image broke into pieces and then the stone literally smashed it to powder and it just blew away and then that stone grew into a great Mountain! What a dream. This was the dream that deeply, deeply troubled Nebuchadnezzar. And then Daniel continues giving him the interpretation of the dream. We pick up in verse 36 of Daniel chapter 2. This is the dream. And we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength and glory, And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. We pick up now on the screen, if you're following verse 38b. "Thou art this head of gold, and after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass which shall bear rule over all the earth." And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all things shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes part of the potter's clay, part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay, and as the toes of the feet were part of iron part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with, the miry, with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever, for as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure." What we find in the interpretation of this dream is God's plan from the time of Babylon to the kingdom, to the millennial kingdom. This is God's plan for the world. Written down, given to us. We know it. We know the charting of events from the time of Babylon to the time where Jesus sets up his kingdom given to us here in Daniel chapter 2. Now there's some things we don't know. That's why we have to study we're going to dig into those and see why we believe what we believe. So Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. We know this then, that Babylon is the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. Then will come another kingdom after you like silver. Then will come another kingdom after that like brass. Now silver is less um, precious than gold, right? So not quite as glorious, not quite as grand. Then the kingdom like brass, uh, uh, still uh, beautiful, but certainly nowhere near as precious, and then stronger, right? Brass is certainly stronger than uh, gold or stronger than, than silver as a, as a metal. And then finally, iron. And iron isn't exactly a beautiful uh, metal, but it is strong. It is a strong metal. And that's what uh, Daniel says, is that the final one will crush. It will destroy. It, can, it is unopposed, and then, of course, we see the iron mixed with clay showing some strength and some weakness. Of course, clay not being beautiful, not being precious, nor being strong, right? So at least with gold, there was, there was beauty. Uh, at least with, um, with silver, there's beauty. When you get to clay, there's just nothing, right? It's just dirt. Uh, not, not, nothing of value at all. Now... Here's what we know. We know that that Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. So we know Babylon is that. But remember what we've learned about prophecy. Prophecy, we know that there can be time gaps, right? So when Daniel says, then will come another kingdom, then will come another kingdom, then will come another kingdom, then will come the millennial reign of Christ or the kingdom of God, the question that we have to ask is, are these in succession or are there major gaps between these kingdoms? And that's the next question that we need to answer. And what we find as we walk through Daniel is that these kingdoms are in, and we walk through history, is that these kingdoms are in succession. They come one right after another. And because we know this, that the, first, uh, the second comes right after the first and the third comes right after the second and the fourth comes right after the third, we then can build a chain of interpretation that tells us that after the fourth will come the kingdom of God in succession. And since the kingdom of God is on one end and Babylon's on the other end, and everything, history is in between that, right? We can know where we are. And we can know what's happening next. And this is exciting. So tuck this information away in Daniel chapter 2 because we're going to be putting some more pieces together uh, to to bring about this big picture. So we go to Daniel 7. Many things happen in Daniel uh, 3, 4, 5, 6. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in, in the fiery furnace. Daniel in lion's den. All of these things are, are happening. And then in Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, we're going to read a chunk again. We read this. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven strove upon the great sea and four great beasts came up from the sea and four great beasts, uh, excuse me, uh, diverse one from another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man. And a man's heart was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second like to a bear. And it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it. And they said un- thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast also had, four, or had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly. And it had great iron teeth it devoured and it brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. And I considered the horns and beheld, behold there came up among them another little horn before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold... In this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, then ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near... Unto one of them that stood by, and asked him of the truth of all this. So he told me, and made me know the interpretation of the things. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom, and possess the kingdom forever, even forever, and ever. So Daniel sees in his vision four beasts. Nebuchadnezzar saw uh, an image with four medals. Daniel sees in his vision... Four beasts. The first, like a lion with eagle's wings, right? And his wings are plucked and he retains the heart of a man. Then we see a bear with one side higher than the other with three ribs in his mouth. Then a leopard with four wings and four heads. And then finally, a dreadful beast that he could not identify, but it had teeth of iron and it had ten horns. Then an eleventh horn, a notable horn that came out from those ten horns that plucked up three of the other horns. This little horn that would rule during this fourth kingdom. And this should sound familiar because it very closely parallels the vision which Nebuchadnezzar saw in Daniel 2. Are you seeing the parallels between them? It's the same progression of four kingdoms leading to God's great kingdom at the end. To this point, however, we have only positively identified one of these kingdoms, and that's Babylon, the head of gold. And this leads us to Daniel chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 and then I'm going to jump to verse 19. In Daniel chapter 8, the Bible says this. In the third year of the reign of, the, of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me Daniel, after that which appeared me at the first. That would be the one in Daniel 7. And I saw in a vision, it came to pass, when I saw that I was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in a vision... And I was by the river of Uli. Then I lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other. Again, the same picture of, of two things, one higher than the other, just like the bear who had one shoulder higher than the other. And the higher came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward, so that no beasts might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand. And he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering, behold, an he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth, and he touched not the ground. And the goat had a notable, one notable horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran unto him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with choler against him, and smote the ram, and brake his two horns, and there was no power in the ram to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground, and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore, the he goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. And he said, Behold, I will make thee know what shall be in the last... Uh, we Skip to verse 19, excuse me. And he said, Behold, I will make thee to know what shall be in the last end of the indignation. For at the time appointed, the end shall be. The ram which thou sawest having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia. And the rough goat is the king of Grecia." and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. So we now have an interpretation of the ram with two sizes of horns, and uh, of the goat, excuse me, of two sizes of horns, and then uh, the ram with the two sizes of horns and the goat with the one horn. My apologies. And we have what these are, the ram with two horns, one higher than the other. This is the Medo-Persian Empire. And the goat that was very swift with one horn, notable horn, which is the first king. So we know that it's not just, each one doesn't just stand for a king, stands for a kingdom. The first king is that horn, and that would be a very notable horn that would be broken swiftly. And that is the Greek empire. Now we have all the components necessary to put Daniel 2, Daniel 7, and Daniel 8 together to understand what's going on here. We see these kingdoms listed one after another. The head of gold is the lion. And this is Babylon. This is the great kingdom of Babylon. Then we see the chest and arms of silver, which is the same as the bear, which is the same as the ram having two horns. The ram has two horns, both of which are different sizes. The bear, its shoulders, one is higher than the other. Both correlating to... The chest and the arms of silver. Then we have the torso and and uh, um, waist of of brass, and this correlates to Greece. The same as the four headed leopard with four wings, and the ram with the notable horn. Excuse me, the goat with the notable horn. Boy, I'm just going to get you all confused here. And then we have the legs of iron and then the iron mixed with clay, which is all one, Rome, and then the, the continuation of the kingdom of Rome. You say, hey, Pastor, how do we know about that? How do we know that it's Rome that, that is iron? Well, we've seen a succession of kingdoms. If you look into history, you'll find that Babylon, as a matter of fact, in Daniel, you read about Babylon falling to the Medo-Persian Empire. You read about it in Daniel 6. So Babylon falls to the Medo-Persian Empire, If you look at history, the Medo-Persian Empire maintained its power until the time of a man named Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was the first king of a united Greek empire. He was a great notable horn, a great notable power, and he very swiftly, like a leopard with four wings, very swiftly, like a goat that did not touch the ground for his swiftness, he very swiftly went throughout the known world, destroying and conquering, so that he conquered the world in a matter of just a a, a number of years. But at the end of that, he died suddenly. That notable horn was broken suddenly. And from him came four generals, four little horns, or the four heads of the leopard. His four generals broke the Grecian Empire into four empires, one that covered the area of Greece, one that covered the area of Syria, one that covered the area of Babylon, one that ca- covered the area of Egypt. I'm not making this up. You can go read it in a history book. Medo-Persian Empire, or excuse me, the Grecian Empire maintains its power through these four kingdoms until there arises a new power in the West. That power was Rome. Rome. Rome overthrew the Seleucids and the Ptolemies in Egypt and in Syria, the two greater of of the four kingdoms. And Rome took over. And Rome maintained their power until Rome never, it was never conquered, was it? Rome was not conquered. Rome dissolved. Rome just kind of faded away. And from it came a culture that we still find ourselves in today. The Western world, the West. Western civilization was really settled in Rome. The Roman Empire was the beginning of true Western civilization. We could argue about it going back to the Greek civilization, of course, um, where Rome got many of its ideas, and, and, with each, and, and Rome got many of its ideas from Medo-Persia, and Medo-Persia got many of its ideas from Babylon, right? So we see that each kingdom engulfed the, the last, but the Roman Empire was the last true empire, and and in many ways, uh, it never went away. Then we have this fourth beast, which could not really be understood, and as we continue to study in Daniel 9, which we'll talk about more over the next couple of weeks, we'll find that in the days of that fourth kingdom, the Bible says in the days of that fourth kingdom, the temple will be destroyed. That happens in 70 AD. And who is it in 70 AD that destroys the temple? It's Rome. Positive identification of that fourth kingdom. It's Rome. So now we have kingdoms number one, two, three, and four. We can positively identify them from the scriptures and from history. And right after will come a mixture of clay, a mixture of that same empire, that same iron empire. Uh, I mean iron, excuse me, and then clay, right? A mixture of them leading to the great unhewn rock of God's kingdom that destroys the kingdoms of this earth. What does it mean? It means we're looking at a succession of kingdoms that does not break. It means that the next thing on the list is the feet of iron and clay and the toes of various iron and clay, leading unto the kingdom of God. A mixture of Western world concepts, Roman concepts, with weak empires, with weak kingdoms, mixing with strong kingdoms, the strong kingdoms being built upon their Roman predecessors, the the philosophy of the Western world, the weak kingdoms not being built upon that same strong foundation, and yet kind of tagging along and being a part of this unified governance unto the kingdom of God. God gives us point A to, gives us A to Z here. He gives us everything unto the coming of his kingdom. He gives us the big picture. Now we see in this time, we see the ten toes, right? The ten toes of iron mixed with clay. We see ten horns on the beast. And then a notable 11th horn that plucks up three of those. Keep all of that in mind because as we start walking through Revelation, you're going to see this come. You're going to see a ten kingdom confederacy. You're going to see three of those kingdoms destroyed. You're going to see these things. We're going to see this come up at the end of, uh, of all things, at, at the tribulation time. And that's where we're going with this. That's the big picture. And that's where I'm going to stop today in our teaching. Again, next week we'll pick up in Daniel 9 and we'll start to walk through Daniel 9, 10, 11 and see what what that has to say to us leading to in that third and final week of our big picture, uh, the tribulation and, and, and revelation itself. And I'll walk you through revelation in a book sermon format as I normally do. And then we'll start in chapter 1, verse 1, after resurrection. Uh, we'll, have, we'll have some Resurrection Sunday um, stuff, and then we'll, we'll start in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. So I gave you a lot of stuff, a lot of information today. I hope it was interesting. I hope it's enlightening. You can go back and look at this from history. From a historical point of view, I'm not going to do that today, although it seems I would have had time. But I want to draw out some application from this because far be it from us to just come and learn some stuff and then leave, right? That's, that's not necessarily what we're here to do. It's important to learn, but it's more important to take what we learn and to be able to apply it. How do we apply just these sorts of facts? Well, point number one I would encourage you is this. In a world of uncertainty, remember that God has a plan. It's, a, it's an uncertain world, isn't it? It's a very uncertain world. And the proliferation of news, because we can get it so quickly and from everywhere, and the news cycle is insanely fast today, means that if we're paying attention, it's, it's very discouraging. Because who knows what's going to happen next. But in this world of uncertainty, what Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8 tells us and reminds us is that God has a plan. As we see the pieces moving on the board, as we see armies and militaries doing their thing, God has a plan. One theologian likened history to a great ocean liner upon which people would sail. On the boat, there's freedom to move. You can go where you want. You can eat when you want. You can sleep when you want. There's a great amount of freedom when you're on the boat. But no matter where you move on the boat, the boat is always going where the boat's going, right? The boat's going from here to here. You've got freedom on the boat, but the boat has a beginning and the boat has an end and, and, and that's the destination. That's history. You and I are a part of it. Nations are a part of it. They rise, they fall, they come, they go. We make choices. Some of those choices are good. Some of those choices are bad. Uh, we have successes. We have failures. Uh, people make decisions. Nations make decisions. But look, there's a destination. And God has already told us what the destination is. Remember how we talked about prophecy and we said how fulfilled prophecy is our assurance of the ones that are, that are left unfulfilled? That because we have seen proph- prophecy fulfilled in the past, that is a, a marker to us that we can expect the prophecies of the future to be fulfilled? Well, if we follow Daniel... Two, Daniel 7, Daniel 8. If we continue into Daniel 9, 10, and 11, you can open a history book and you can open Daniel and you can trace them. Now, if God was accurate with all that history, we can bet He's accurate about the stuff that hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened, but it's just as sure. You can read Daniel like a history book. It is just as sure as the stuff that has. And that's what fulfilled prophecy is intended to teach us of that surety. God has a destination for history. God has a plan. Let us remember that in the uncertain days of life. If history can teach us anything, it's that nothing stays the same forever. People come, people go. Nations rise, nations fall. Babylon was an impenetrable empire. 605 B.C., they came and they took uh, the captives of Jerusalem. By 586 B.C., Jerusalem had been destroyed. Egypt could not stop them. The Assyrians could not stop them. They they had overtaken all the great empires, Egypt, Assyria. But just 70 years later, Medo-Persia had taken Babylon, and Babylon was nothing. Medo-Persia was now the empire. Give it another 150, 200 years and Alexander the Great wipes everyone out. Give it a couple hundred more years and Rome is now unopposed. Things change. Rome has scattered. The Western world has been maintained, however. We don't see a great Roman empire, but Rome was never dismantled. You can trace it. Different men, different nations carried the torch of the Western world, but it has never gone away. Charlemagne and his Holy Roman Empire, the first German Reich, Otto I, the times of great power for Spain and Portugal. There was a time of the British Empire. Statistically, there was a time where the British Empire owned twenty five percent of the world's landmass. Greatest empire that's ever walked the earth as far as land mass is concerned. From that tiny little island. What? The the same philosophy, though. Same Western world. The same Western ideals. Brief time with Napoleon. The second German Reich formed by Otto von Bismarck. Ending with the Great War of 1918. Then the Third Reich, which was attempted by Adolf Hitler. The Second World War. Nations have risen, they have fallen. Empires have risen, they have fallen. Now, the United States empire of sorts European Union the union of nations that we see Chinese empire in the east nations have risen nations have fallen but in the words of Isaiah Isaiah 40 verses 7 and 8 the grass withereth the flower fadeth because the spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it surely the people is grass the grass withereth the flower fadeth But the word of our God shall stand forever. We can't trust that the United States of America will be what it is in 20 years, 50 years, 100 years. We can't trust that. We can't trust that we'll continue along the same prosperity, we'll continue along the same uh, ideology. You know, certainly already so much of that is changing, but what can we trust? There's an end. God has told us of that end. God is faithful. It's not out of God's control. And he's told us how to live regardless. He has given us the roadmap for history, but he's also given us the roadmap for us. And how we live need not be affected by what's happening in history. Either way, we follow. We trust. We obey. We stick to God's plan because we know He has one. Number two. First, in a world of uncertainty, remember God has a plan. Number two, in a world of uncertainty, allow God's promises to be your anchor. This uh, can be a spiritual idea. It can also be a physical idea. And let Let me explain that to you. We are in this world of uncertainty. Everyone has a theory about what's next, ideas about where things are going, and that's okay. Uh, it's okay for us to look at what's next. When people talk about end times, they say, "What? what's the kingdom of Antichrist going to be? Who is Antichrist going to be? Uh, Martin Luther and the Re- reformers called the Pope the Antichrist. Uh, many people still believe that the Pope and the Catholic Church will have a, a heavy part in, in the in Antichrist's plan. Um, uh, um, Islam sees their 12th Imam as this uh, figure who we would recognize as Antichrist. If you ever look into Islamic prophecy, the, the great uh, apocalyptic imam that they're looking for, the one that ISIS was attempting to usher in, the, the, their final caliphate, they're looking for the 12th imam. That, that imam, if you read Islamic prophecy, is Antichrist to a T. People are looking. People have theories. Who will, uh, wh- wh- what will, what will the nation look like? What will the kingdoms look like? And those theories are fine until those theories give way to fear. Until what we suspect about the future begins to cause us to fear the future. That's where it becomes a problem. Why? Because God has the plan. If our interpretation is true, as we trace Babylon to Medo-Persia, Medo-Persia to Greece, Greece to Rome, Rome to the ten-nation confederacy of Antichrist and Antichrist to the kingdom of Christ himself, that means that we are are looking at a, a chart of promises that can allay some of our fears. Do you know that if Daniel is true as we have interpreted it, then China will never become the world power. It can't. Or at least Chinese culture, Eastern Eastern culture cannot become the world power. Western culture will maintain its dominance until the time of the end. Now, that doesn't mean China could not be fully westernized and then become a a part of it. But we see in Ezekiel and Revelation the promises of the kings of the East coming. There's an Eastern culture. There's a Western culture. There's a Mid-Eastern culture. And if we follow the word of God and we take it at his word, Mideastern culture will never overrun Western culture in its fullness. Now, how does that mesh with today? Good question. See, a hundred years ago, I could say that and people would say, of course. But now we see Europe dying. Europe is culturally almost dead because of Immigration. Because of Near Eastern culture encroaching upon a Western culture in Europe that the people of the West have decided they don't want to fight for anymore. It's lost its identity, Western culture, which of course was built on Judeo-Christian value. And because of that, the loss of Judeo-Christian value, the loss of Western culture, the loss of the appreciation for it, there's a battle in Europe right now over the identity of an entire continent. How does that play? I don't know. That that that's a, a new thing. If I'd have been preaching this message 10 years ago, I never would have even thought of Europe's culture dissolving as we see it today. Will that mean a great reformation of European culture or will that mean that Europe will cease to be what it is? We don't know. But you know what we don't have to fear? Because we've got the plan. And we know the plan. We don't know all the ins and outs of what's happening on the boat, but we know the boat is going to a destination. And so the question for us is are we on God's side? Right? We have the anchor, which is the Word of God. Now the question is who's on the Lord's side? Because, third and final point, this is what we know God wins. We've read the end. Have you ever done that in a book? It's just so much tension that you go to the end, read the last chapter just to kind of break the tension and then start reading again because you just can't handle it. Well, we know the end. God wins. We know that prophecy reveals to us the nature of Jesus Christ. All prophecy does. We're about to step into the revelation of Jesus Christ. The whole book meant to reveal to us Jesus Christ through prophecy. Daniel 2, the statue representative of mankind's greatest political and economic achievements, right? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greek, Rome. This, this, if, if, if we were to point to the great civilizations of mankind and what has been drawn from them, those four kingdoms would be on the list. And yet there's an unhewn stone. It's going to hit the bottom of that statue one day. And all of that gold and all of that silver and all of that brass and all of that iron, all of that strength and all of that beauty and all of those precious things and all of the grandeur will just be blown away like dust in comparison to what is coming one day when God wins. Daniel 7, we read of the beast. I I love the, the contrast here. When Nebuchadnezzar, when, when, when Nebuchadnezzar sees a dream of the kingdoms of this world, he sees them as precious, beautiful. When, when, when God shows Daniel the kingdoms of this world, what does he show him as? Nothing but beasts, just animals. Only one of them takes the heart of a man, and that's Babylon. And we can read about that in Daniel 4 when, when Nebuchadnezzar actually repents and humbles himself before the Lord. He gains the heart of a man, the heart of 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 one who is right with God he he becomes something other than just a beast God looks at the kingdoms of this world as as beasts and, and, and little more and we see at the end of that God establishing his kingdom God slaying the final beast and allowing those other beasts to live for a time unto an everlasting dominion that at the name of Jesus, Philippians two tells us every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so the first question that we have to ask here is: We understand that God wins. Is are you on the winning side? Are you on His side? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us: You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We have all fallen short. God is perfect. We are sinful, and we have been separated from God because of that sin. God, a holy, perfect God, cannot have fellowship with sinful man. He cannot do it. That means we're in trouble. For the wages of sin, the payment of sin, the penalty of sin is death. Because we have sinned, we are separated from God. We are separated from God in this life and if we persist in that separation unto the end, the Bible says, when we die, it is appointed unto man once to die and after this, the judgment. We will be separated from God eternally in a place of burning and fire called the lake of fire. Eternal conscious torment, eternal separation from God. For the wages of sin is death, that's the bad news, but the good news continues. But the gift of God Is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the Bible tells us that God so loved the world. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, when we had rebelled against God, when there was nothing that he should love us, the Bible says he loved us still, and he so loved us that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world. Condemnation is coming, but not yet. He sent his Son into the world that the world through him might be saved. How's it done? He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. If you're sitting here this morning and you're not on God's side, if you have never come to the point in your life where you've recognized that you are a sinner, that your sin has separated you from God, that there's no way you can get yourself back to God. I can't earn my way to God. I've already, I'm already in the hole. I'm already in the pit. Even if I stop sinning today, I'm already a debtor. The sin has to be dealt with. So what did God do? He sent His only begotten Son to die on the cross, but He didn't stay dead, and this is important. The Bible says Jesus died on the cross and when he died on the cross, God the Father looked at God the Son and God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin. He took your sin and my sin and placed it on Jesus Christ on that day. Paid the penalty for your sin on that day that if we will accept the free gift of salvation, he that believeth on him is not condemned. We will receive everlasting life. But a dead Savior is no good to us. If he paid the debt and then stayed in the grave, how could he offer us something he did not have himself? How could I have life if he has no life? So the Bible tells us that three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, claiming victory over death, claiming victory over the grave, claiming victory over hell, claiming victory over sin, and that because he lives, so we can too. Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior today? If not, here's what we know. God wins. God wins. There are two kingdoms. We've been talking about this over the past many weeks, right? There's two kingdoms. There's Satan's and there's God's. And Satan's kingdom has a lot of going for it, but it's all lies. It's all deceits. It's all temporal. It's all empty. It's like cotton candy, right? You're hungry, so you go and you get that cotton candy and you eat it, and it tastes great in your mouth, and you're still hungry (laughs) doesn't do much for you doesn't do much for you Satan's lies they're like that they taste great but God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us to give us something real something substantive if you've never accepted Christ today would you come see me would you talk, talk with me more about it would you make that choice now today right there in your seat Accept Christ as your Savior. Accept that gift of salvation. Second, as we think about this concept of God winning, we're a couple weeks out from our considerations of the conflict, as I talked about, between God and Satan. But let us take a moment to compare and contrast Nebuchadnezzar's dream, as I mentioned, the kingdoms and the metals, as we see this idea of the beasts, God seeing them as beasts, Nebuchadnezzar seeing them as, as great We talked about the lies of Satan's kingdom as it relates to salvation, but we as Christians are not immune from those lies, are we? We're not immune from the allure of the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. We're not uh, immune from a worldliness that would seek us to place our love and our affections and our hopes and our desires upon the things of this life rather than the things of the life to come. Yet our Lord tells us in Matthew chapter 6 But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. What are those things? Food and raiment, provisions. You're on his side. You've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Are you fighting for him? Are you in the battle? Are you living for him? Are you representing him? Or are you dead weight? You're in, you've accepted Christ as your savior, but you wouldn't know it. You're a part of the kingdom of God, but you don't really represent it. If we know we're on the winning side, if we know that Christ's way is the way, the truth and the life, then let's not waste our time in Satan's lies. We serve an eternal kingdom. This is why we lay up treasure in heaven because the things of this earth will pass away but the things of the world to come will last forever. And I'd like to close today with a parable that our Lord Jesus gave while he was on this earth before his death and resurrection. And it was a warning that we found our lives on a sure foundation and then we build on that lives of strength. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27, the Bible says this, Therefore whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not... Shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Where's your foundation this morning? What are you building upon it? The Spirit of Jesus Christ is the Spirit of prophecy. The point of the big picture is so that we don't have to worry about who's going to win and we can spend our, all of our time serving the one who has already won. Are you doing it this morning? Is that the tone, the tenor, the direction of your life? Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota.